0: What now? Uh, March 26th just passed. It's a very special day in my family because two of my children actually share this date as their birthday. Yeah, so for seven years, uh, our younger son, Caleb, was the baby of the family. And then on his birthday, six weeks before her due date, Our sweet Charlie girl decided she was ready to come out into the world. And just like that, she was like, You're not the youngest anymore. You're not the cutest anymore. And I'm taking your birthday, all right? (laughs) Yeah, it was a crazy day. Uh, Because on one hand, we'd tried for some time to have another child, and it just took longer than we had expected. And and maybe some of you can relate to that struggle, right? Um, Where you were waiting and waiting and uh, disappointment and a little discouraged week after week and month after month, year after year. And uh, I think in general, when we are looking forward to something, it's like time seems to slow down. Anyone know what I mean? Yeah, if particularly in this moment of time, uh, our perception of time, was slowing down the longer the pregnancy went on. Uh, I would hear my wife saying things like, how much longer can this possibly take? Right, because every day felt like an eternity with the cravings and the nausea and the cramps and all these wonderful things that come along with pregnancy. But then your sweet baby girl decides to come six weeks earlier than expected. And all of a sudden, time is not slow anymore. You understand, right? It is racing. We're not ready. We, we, we're not prepared. We, we need more time. Time to put the crib together in the nursery and time to get little tiny clothes and, and diapers and time to baby-proof the entire house all over again. What I'm trying to say is that sometimes the same amount of time can feel drastically different depending on your perspective, right? Uh, for instance, my boys... They're growing boys. They are eating machines. They will snack all day long if you let them. <laughs> now, typically we don't let them, especially before mealtimes. But it never fails. They will race out of their room. They'll, they'll come, they'll run down to the pantry, and I will hear my wife say, ah, ah, ah. no. No snacks. We, it's 10 minutes until dinner, okay? And what do they say? Ah, what? ten minutes? Come on. Now, when they say that, that's because they see that as a long time. But at the same time, I might be in my office uh, reading, studying, writing a paper, maybe preparing a sermon like this one. And while the kids are complaining that ten minutes is way too long, I'm thinking ten minutes oh, no, that's not enough time. I'm on a roll here. I I need to stick with my thoughts. I need to finish this paragraph or or whatever I I might be working on in that moment. And so there are different ways of waiting, different ways of perceiving the passage of time. And, And the same is true. As Christians, we all find ourselves waiting in this moment of delay before the second coming of Christ. We're waiting for Jesus to return. And how we wait matters. In many ways, this is exactly what Jesus has been pointing out in his last sermon to us. And it's why we've titled this sermon series, What Now? How is it that our tomorrow shapes our today? And so if you haven't already, would you please join me in your Bibles or your uh, Bible apps? Feel free to fire those up. Just find yourself in the book of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Uh, While you find your place there, this is the last sermon in our series, and so I just want to take a moment to uh, kind of review, to summarize everything that we've studied just far, so make sure we're on the same page and give us a little bit of context here. Uh, This is a portion of scripture that's known as the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus and his disciples have just left the temple, and they've gone up to sit on the Mount of Olives. We like to have fancy names for things, so we call it the Olivet Discourse. Uh, And it's here as they are looking down this mountain at the cityscape below that Jesus' disciples draw his attention to the magnificence and the beauty of the temple, right? And Jesus says, yeah, but it's all going to be destroyed. (laughs) In fact, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And so in response, the disciples ask Jesus two questions. The first question is essentially, When will the destruction of the temple take place? And Jesus answers this question in the following verses all the way down to verse 35. He says, earthquakes, famines, wars are going to take place. And all of this is snowballing. It is escalating. It's all building up to this final climactic moment when the temple will be utterly destroyed. Think about what that means for the Jew. There's no temple No place for the priests to offer sacrifices to God. I mean, we are talking about the entire old covenant way of relating to God gone, done away with. Why? Because at the same time, Jesus would be enthroned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so now in Jesus, we have a better temple, a better prophet, priest, and king, a better covenant. And all of this, Jesus says, will take place in their generation, in the lifetime of his disciples. And then, in verse 36, Jesus kind of pivots. He he changes direction. He begins answering the disciples' second question that they asked What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And to this question, Jesus says, No one knows. No one knows the day or the hour that this is going to take place, but in order to help us understand this, he begins to tell some parables, right? He begins illustrating what it is going to be like when he returns. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah, illustrating the the utter normalcy that was leading up to the flood. He says people were just eating, drinking, hey, having a good time. They're going off to work. They're getting married. They're starting families. It was just business as usual, right? Another typical day until the flood came and wiped them all away. And Jesus says that is what it is going to be like when the Son of Man returns. A surprising, sudden, swift judgment. And so therefore he urges them to stay awake right? Something that will be repeated, this kind of familiar refrain over and over again in this discourse, to remain spiritually alert and prepared so that when he returns, they will be found as a faithful servant, someone who is actively engaged in the work which he has given them to do, or like a bridesmaid who is faithfully prepared for the arrival of the bridegroom. And last week we saw that We will all be held accountable for what we have done with our time here and now. In this moment of delay that we find ourselves living in before the return of Christ. And either we will faithfully participate in the work which God has given us to do, producing spiritual fruit for the kingdom, hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or we'll hear that you are wicked and lazy for making no kingdom impact, for producing no spiritual fruit in your life, and you'll be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (sighs) Some pretty heavy stuff, right? Pretty serious things that Jesus is talking about, and he he seems to be drawing out this reality that there is a difference between a saving faith and an empty faith. That there is a big difference between being a believer and a make-believer. And the difference is in how we wait. How we find ourselves waiting. Because those who have a real, true, genuine faith will remain awake. We will remain spiritually alert as we wait for the Lord's return. And as Jesus has instructed us through all these parables that he's been telling, they will be found preparing. The people of God will be found producing. And today we see will be found providing. And so... At least in some ways, it is our actions that reveal our identity. So let's read this together. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, come. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the first thing we see here that really should impact the way that we live our lives today is that Christ will one day gloriously return. Christ will one day gloriously return. Let's look back up at the first three verses here, uh, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So, This description of Jesus' second coming is already drastically different from his first coming, right? In his first coming, Jesus came as a man, right? So the invisible God was made visible in the person of Jesus because he had taken on flesh. But because he was covered in flesh, his divinity was hidden. It was veiled in flesh. It was obscure. I mean, you couldn't tell that he was the very son of God just by looking at him, right? He looked like a man, any other man. But when Jesus comes again, oh, he will no longer be hidden. His glory will not be hidden. It will not be obscure. It will not be restrained in any way. He will come in full strength, in full power, and it will be glorious. And he's not coming alone. All the heavenly hosts, will come with him. All the angels will join him and he will sit on his glorious throne as he executes final judgment. Did you know that? I think a lot of times we think of judgment and we think of uh, God the Father with the curly hair and, and the gavel you know, at the bench acting as judge. But the scriptures actually portray Jesus as the judge. John 5, and 23 says this, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. So the son of man is also the judge of man. And Jesus is affirming this here, right? As he describes that his return will bring judgment and separation of all the nations of all people into two categories, sheep and goats. Now, In the Middle East, sheep and goats were, and and often still are, pastured in mixed flocks together. Uh, You know, when we think of sheep, we think about them having these big, fluffy, pure, white coats, um, and the goats are, you know, a little darker in color They have that little goatee thing hanging from their chin, maybe even horns coming from their heads. But actually oftentimes these two animals looked very similar in the wild. Uh, In fact, some languages don't even have words for both of them. They have one word for these two animals. That's how similar they can be. And so it, it could take a practiced eye to actually distinguish between these two. And this is something that the disciples would have easily understood, right? This is up their alley. This is happening around them all the time. It's a little foreign to us. And so I brought a picture just to maybe help us understand this, right? Which of the animals in this flock are sheep and which ones are goats? Can you tell? Maybe a little more difficult than you originally thought, right? And I think one thing this picture does illustrate really well is that the animals in the foreground are a little easier to distinguish between than the ones in the background. Right? In other words, the the closer you are to them, the easier it is to, to make this distinguishing between them. But the opposite then is also true, right? The farther you are away, the more they tend to blend in together, the more they look alike, and it becomes harder to distinguish between them. And so this is the picture that Jesus paints for his disciples. He says, in this world, there are sheep and there are goats, and they're dwelling together for now. But when the shepherd king gloriously returns, he will judge and he will separate the nations into two flocks. Those who put their faith in Christ alone and those who did not. Now, here's the thing. It is tempting for us to take on this role for ourselves. It is tempting for us to look upon others and make this kind of judgment when we have no place doing this. Please hear me. This judgment is reserved for Christ alone. Why? Because we are finite human beings, right? In, in some ways, we are always looking at people from a distance. We are always looking at them from afar. And oftentimes, we might only see their social media highlight reel, right? We only see what they want us to see. And so, People can fool us. We might even be able to fool ourselves in the way that we present ourselves. But Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So you can try to bury the truth. You can try to deny it or rationalize it or redefine it however you want. But Christ knows all. Even your so-called secret sins is what Psalm 90, verse 8 tells us. So it is not our place to judge. In fact, if we do, we only tend to cause more damage. Uh, In Matthew 13, Jesus tells another parable, but this time about wheat and weeds. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Some pretty savage farming practices here, right? The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And so the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered because while you are pulling the weeds you may uproot the wheat with them let them grow together until the harvest and at that time i will tell the harvesters first collect the weeds tie them up into bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn so you see it is it is not our job to judge and separate the wheat from the weeds in fact if anything this parable seems to indicate that it would cause unnecessary collateral damage for us to try to do this And so what are we to do? We let the farmer separate the wheat from the weeds at the time of harvest. Do you understand? This frees us from judgment. It frees us from judgment. Why? So that we can love. What stops you from loving? What stops you from loving the least of these? Your judgment. Oftentimes it is our own judgment of them that gets in the way. And we may not be able to tell the difference between wheat and weeds or sheep and goats, but every single sin is known by God and will be judged by God. And when Christ returns in all his glory, that judgment will only be satisfied in one of two places, either at the cross of Christ or the throne of Christ. There will either be eternal life or eternal punishment Those are the only two choices. You are either a sheep or a goat. And there's some interesting dialogue that takes place here as Jesus begins to make this judgment and this separation. And so the second thing that he points out, which should impact our lives here today, is that a faith without works is worthless. Faith without works is worthless. Let's read this middle chunk uh, again, starting at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, Did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So Jesus has talked about two people in this, right? Sheep and goats. And the sheep are placed on his right and the goats are placed on his left. And here we get a little more explanation of this, right? Because to be at the right hand of the king is always seen as a position of blessing and honor. And we we still kind of talk like this today, right? We'll say, hey, that's my right-hand man. You need anything? Go right to him. And the sheep who are on the right hand of Jesus are then blessed by the Father because they are considered righteous. They will inherit the kingdom as fellow heirs with Jesus. The kingdom, get this, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world. However, the goats on the left are not blessed. In fact, they're cursed. And the question is why? Why is this? Why is one called to come and the other commanded to depart? Why is one blessed and the other cursed? And what we see is it all comes down to the way they lived their lives. Jesus says to the sheep in verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me, and I was in prison, and you came to me. While well, the goats did not, and therefore they are cursed. Now, what's interesting is that both sides, right? The sheep and the goats respond in the exact same way. They are both completely shocked and surprised by what Jesus says. They both ask, ask the question, when? When? <laughs> When did we see you and do these things for you or not do these things for you? And Jesus responds by saying, whatever you have done for my brothers, even the least of them, you've done it to me. Now, this is similar to something Jesus has already communicated uh, earlier on in, in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 46, it says, while Jesus was... Still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And that's talking about his biological family members here, right? His actual mother and brothers are outside. They want to speak to Jesus. Verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister, and mother. And in the same way here, Jesus is talking about anyone and everyone who is born again and adopted into the spiritual family of God. And so this judgment is based upon how these people treated the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should not be going out and ministering to the needs of the people in this world, that we should neglect uh, unbelievers. No, all I'm saying is that this isn't what Jesus is talking about here. Right? This passage, in this passage Jesus is specifically referencing his spiritual eternal family. Why? Oh, because that is how closely he associates himself. He identifies himself with his followers. It's, a, it's an incredible truth that, that we seem to, to very easily forget sometimes. You, I mean, we understand that the faithful are the ones who will be found doing the will of God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that those people call themselves Christians because they identify with Christ. But What's absolutely incredible is that Christ identifies himself with them. Christ identifies with his church, his spiritual family, even the very least of them. So much so that whatever you do to them, you do it to him. Hey, however you treat them is how you treat Jesus. We are that united. We are that unified in Christ. Now notice what he says to the goats. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. He doesn't say, for I saw you involved in all kinds of evil and wickedness against my church. Instead, the condemnation is in all the ways in which they failed to help out all the ways in which they failed to participate and be involved in the church. And so it's a great reminder that there are sins of commission, right? The things that we do that we shouldn't do. But there are also sins of omission when we neglect to do the things we should. And we will be held accountable for both. He says, you didn't do any of these things for me. Why? Because you didn't do them for my body, the church. And so you are cursed. Depart from me, I will throw you into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And and just to be clear, Jesus is not talking about a works-based righteousness here, right? Because Jesus is not addressing the root of salvation of all, but the fruit of salvation. That when you are brought to salvation through faith in Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. And then you will also be brought to love the family of God. And you will actually want to serve. You will want to be around them, to be involved in their lives. You will want to provide for them, especially when they are in need. And that spiritual fruit is evidence of saving faith. And we get this. We we understand this. James, the half-brother of Jesus, has a very familiar exposition of this very same idea. He says this in James uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And guess what? James will go on to admonish the church to take care of the least of these, the widows and the orphans. But you see, you don't work for your salvation. You work from your salvation. It is evidence of saving faith. The reformers actually said it this way, that you're saved by faith alone. But a truly saving faith is never alone. And one of the marks of a true follower of Christ is a love for the church. You cannot love Jesus without loving the church. Just like you cannot love me and befriend me and hate my wife. It doesn't work that way. You cannot love Jesus without loving the church. And let me just be quick to say this real quick, uh, what I'm not talking about here, because I understand that, There are people who love Jesus, but they have been very deeply hurt by the people in the church. And as a result, they tend to pull back. They tend to to not be involved as much. That's something different. Uh, It's a unique situation that requires a certain amount of care uh, and restitution and reconciliation. Ultimately, healing has to take place there. I'm not talking about that. But there are people out there, you understand, that have this idea that you can love and serve Jesus alone, like a lone ranger, rogue Christianity that has absolutely nothing to do with the church. And that is a significant error. It does not line up with the word of God. In fact, Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciple. How will the world know who are his disciples? By our love for one another. And just like our salvation, this kind of love is a supernatural work of God because it is unconditional. It is self-sacrificial love that we are talking about here. This is not a discriminating love. This is not isolated to the ones that you like in the church or the ones that you tend to get along with or even limited to the people that you've met. It is a universal love for all of God's people, even the least of them. Why? Because this love is not predicated on the people in the church. It is based on the Christ who died for it. And so this is really important because Christ will one day gloriously return. And on that day, a faith without works will be found worthless. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 19, What good is a tree that doesn't produce fruit? It's good for nothing except to be chopped up and thrown into the fire. So we must take the time to examine our lives because the last thing Jesus says here, the exclamation point at the end of his sermon about how we are to live, how we are to wait for his ultimate return is that your faith determines your destination. Your faith determines your destination. Look at verse 46. And these, speaking of the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And throughout this whole section, there have only been two types of people, right? It's been the blessed and the cursed, those who are for and those who are against. And now we see there's only two destinies eternal life or eternal punishment, the eternal kingdom or eternal fire. And likewise, there's only two ways for you to hear Jesus' words today. A goat will hear this as a threat. It will produce fear and anxiety. It might even produce anger and hatred at the very idea of being held accountable to a holy and just God. But to you, I say, it's not too late. It's not too late. Jesus is describing here the things that will take place, what will happen when he finally returns, but he hasn't yet. He hasn't yet, and so it is not too late. There is still time. You can come to know the Lord today. So please, please do not leave here today until you have confessed and repented, turning away from your sins and embracing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Do not leave here today until you have felt his grace and his mercy washing over you like waves at the seashore, bringing you peace and assurance that you are his and he is yours, that you know him, And that he knows you. Because to the saints of the church, to those who have already put their faith in Christ, to those who are blessed sheep in the family of God, this is not a threat. It is a wonderful, beautiful promise that the shepherd will gather his sheep, that the bridegroom will return to come for his bride, that the master will return to renew and restore all things. And so we actually look forward to this day. We live in anticipation of the return of Christ and it compels us to worship here and now in the delay While we find ourselves waiting. So may we be a church. May we be a people that is found faithfully preparing for His return, faithfully producing spiritual fruit for the kingdom of God, faithfully providing for those around us, especially the least of these, for His glory until the day He returns or the day he calls us home. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the gift of your word today. God, we thank you for the promise of Christ's inevitable return, the the magnitude and the majesty of his unveiled glory. But it's also a sobering reminder that justice and judgment will be rendered either at the cross of Christ